Welcome, everybody, to Encounter Church. Uh, before we jump into the message this morning, I want to give an invitation to everybody uh, to join us for Partnership 101. That happens next week, Sunday afternoon, following 1045 worship. We're pretty excited about that, especially if you've been uh, just tracking with Encounter for a little while now. We would love to dig in and to get to know you and help you get to know the church uh, a lot better so that we can go ahead and move out and bring people far from God to new life in Christ. All right, today we're talking part four of four, kind of the saving the best for last desserts on the topic of politics. And I know that a lot of you save politics for dessert all the time because you just love that conversation so, so very much. In fact, um, earlier on when we planned out the series, I was a little bit uh, nervous and thinking like, you know, it'd be good to talk about stuff after it's like the dust is settled, you know, and like where we go from now. And then last week happened and it was like, man, <laughs> glad we're just jumping right into the middle of this thing. Uh, people ask me like, oh, do you, do you just like loathe like having to talk about politics? And the truth is not really. Um, because when we hear from Jesus and we hear from God's perspective, there's just so much encouragement and there's so much comforting and there's so much wisdom in this book about like how to chart the path forward. It actually, it isn't that loathsome at all. Some of you are heading into Thanksgiving weekend coming up here in a couple weeks and you're going to be sitting around a table with people, maybe from a variety of locations as everybody kind of converges on uh, that home where you're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. Maybe there's people from a wide perspective of backgrounds that are converged on one place for Thanksgiving. And I think the, the benefit of having this book and the wisdom included in it provides us this dramatically powerful path forward that God charts for us. And so like coming off from the heels of last week and knowing what we're going to talk about um, this week, this morning on Up Ahead, um, I want to like point something out, right? That even though it looks like we have a clear winner to the presidential election, when you start breaking some of those numbers down, even just like surface level, right? Because you see the map last week, and you'll see it a lot this week, um, that there's like red states and blue states. And, but when you start to break it down, you start like county by county, and then you start breaking it down even more table by table, it, it's less of a red and blue. And we can start to get the sense that there's like division, and there's different opinions, there's different perspectives. And we want to say, like, no, 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 but now we're the United States of America. It's like, no, 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 in a lot of ways, we may have never been more the divided states of America. As we got to, like, figure out this path now, and our gospel hope helps us chart, chart a way forward. Because there's a potential that if we can get this thing right, not only our communities will win, not only the churches will win, but you, this Thanksgiving before and after, you could win as well. So let's go ahead and do that. We're going to jump into the words, not just mine, but we jump into a prayer that Jesus prayed in some of the last moments that he had free before he was arrested and crucified, dead and buried. He offered up a prayer in one of his favorite places in the world, in this garden. He prayed for his disciples, but he also prayed specifically for you and me. So let's jump into John chapter 17. We're going to go to John 17, start off in verse 1, where Jesus prays, and we kind of get this insight into the words that he prayed in some of those last few moments that he had alive. He prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The hour has come. Which hour, Jesus? Which hour is just right now upon us? 
the hour, the one and only, the hour has now finally come. It's upon us. The hour for Jesus that he's talking about, of course, is the hour that he's been predicting for years now. He said, listen, guys, his disciples, they're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. But I want you to know that this is happening. And then in this story, in John 17, he's alone with his father. He's praying to his father who's in heaven. And he's saying, that hour of my death, it's now imminent. It's right here. So, Father, that you would glorify me so that I could then in turn glorify you. For some reason, this man's death seemed like glory. And that's the part that just kind of like honestly blows my mind. Because the hour that Christ was most glorified was the hour that you and me probably would be most horrified. We don't want that to happen. What could possibly be worse than that happening? It's just, it's, it's odd how sometimes a loss can sometimes be turned into a win. It's funny how sometimes a win can actually be cast as a loss based on what comes next. This is going to be a monumentally trivial example of that, so forgive me. But totally hypothetical situation. He comes home from work, and he leaves his, uh, his muddy work boots on the, on the mat in front of the door where he's supposed to go. She looks over at him and goes, how many times do I have to ask you to put the boots away? And instead of responding, he pulls out his phone, and he just says, oh, I always do this. And he kind of just starts flipping through photographic, documented evidence of every sock that she left out in the living room, every dish that she left out on the countertop, every toothpaste cap left uncapped in the bathroom and said, I'm the offender, am I? Who, who wins that one? You know, he's got better evidence, right? Some of you have maybe been in that situation. This doesn't have to be a couple's thing. This can be like a roommate's thing. You're just not like, I've been in that argument. Like, he's, he's not winning. There's no winner there. You're right. You're right. Sometimes, again, what looks like a win really is cast off as a loss because of what happens next. A loss comes off as a win because of what happens next. This is, is why that, that principle, that, that's so important. Because some of you had a candidate that based on the votes of last Tuesday, either won or lost. But even though your candidate either won or lost based on the votes last Tuesday, you will either win or lose today based on what you do next. And there's so much at stake. Last week, we, uh, we reminded you of the law of the harvest. You pick what you plant. And so I, I want to come back to that thing and said, if you're going around now and you are putting into the ground seeds of division, seeds of discord, seeds of disunity, if you're putting those things, if that's what you're sowing, you're going to come back and you're going to grow something and bite into it and you might not love what you bite into later. Even though it may have felt like a win or even though it might have felt like a loss, I'm telling you, your communities win, your church wins, you win or lose based on what 
happens next. And Jesus, in his genius, he knows this. And so in his last moments alive before he's arrested, he continues on and he prays for you specifically. This is what he says in verse 20. He says that my prayer is not for them. That's the disciples he's talking about now. My prayer is not just for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, through the disciples' message. He's talking about you. You're the ones, I'm the ones who believe based on the testimony of those disciples. Jesus is saying, I pray for these people as well, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be one. I want to do something this morning that I have never done to my recollection on this stage in the past. Is that we are a church absolutely sold out and committed to the vision of bringing people far from God to new life in Christ. And so everything that we do, every decision that we make, we make with people who are unsure, with unbelievers in mind. But the thing that I'd like to do that we've never done before is to set that aside for just a moment and have like this dinner table, eyeball to eyeball kind of conversation of saying, let's, let's just talk as believers in a family, as a church, and like figure out how to go forward based on these words of Jesus, how to go forward following after Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And if you're not sure, and if, you're not, not, if you don't belong maybe to this church or any church, because we're talking about the whole church now all together, if you're not quite a believer yet, and you're still, you have the chance now, you're a fly on the wall, and you just get to watch as to how Christians, how believers in the church, the whole church everywhere, have these kind of conversations. But let's just bring it down to this moment right here. We're just having like a, like a kitchen table kind of conversation. How do we go forward? Jesus, in some of his last moments alive, prays that we would be one as he and his father are one. And Jesus, these aren't just words that he said. You know, I would have done things all wrong. So if I, differently. So if I could just be a bit critical of Jesus and his strategy for just a moment. A couple of guys that he invited along with him. Simon, the zealot. And they called him the zealot. It wasn't just a fun nickname because he was so passionate and zealous for different stuff. I love tacos, you know. They call him Simon the Zealot because that was a member of a political party, a political faction in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. They called him a, a, the zealot because he was a part of this group that was absolutely hell-bent on getting the and getting the Roman overlords off their backs by any means necessary, even if it was violent. Until Jesus comes up to him and says, Simon, Simon, I want you to come and follow me. Okay, that's over here. Over here, Jesus got this other guy that was called Matthew the tax collector. He, he didn't call him the tax collector just because, just because he was an accountant. That was his title. That was his job. On the other side of things, we have this guy who's, who basically said, listen, I guess if you can't beat them, you might as well make a lot of money with them. 
And so he sells out his countrymen, he sells out the Jewish people, he puts a price on everybody's head and gives the money to Rome and keeps a lot of it for himself. That's Matthew the tax collector. How in the world do these guys get along? I don't know. But somehow the mission of Jesus was bigger than either of those factions. And so together they found this unity and moving forward. And so listen, if if Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector could somehow join the mission of God and push it forward, chances are that Republicans and Democrats and Independents and Indecisives and Libertarians and Librarians can all get together and push this thing forward. Because when we identify less as party people and more, first and foremost, as kingdom people, something incredible happens. It's like like our unity somehow confirms his resurrection. It's a powerful testimony. I mean, the thing about it is, Jesus, 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 he wanted this unity for us not just for us, that he's got this grand vision at stake. I mean, he can, he can look out and he can see believers in the most diverse religion the world has ever seen across every time and place and continent. He can see it all laid out ahead of him, but we don't get there if we retreat on into our corners and don't have these critical conversations with one another. He knows that we don't get there. And so this vision for unity and moving forward and changing the world, it isn't just for us. It's something that he does through us. Listen to the next words, like continuing on in verse 21, we see, may they, remember the they is we, may they, may we also be in us, father and son, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that as a, uh, as a seminary student having to learn Greek, I also learned that this, was a, this is a purpose clause, the so that. That this is a clause that Jesus uses and slips in there because he's got a purpose for his church. He's got a purpose for his disciples. He's got a purpose for his people. He's got a purpose for you and for me. And the purpose is that this wouldn't just end with you and me. The purpose is that the mission of God would go forward. The purpose is that our unity confirms and preaches his resurrection. It's a powerful purpose that he has given you. And listen, listen, the world notices. It's it's an odd thing that just two guys, a zealot and a tax collector, on mission together, can preach the resurrection. It's an odd thing. It's just the peculiarity about it. It somehow seems to work. It's almost like it's a miraculous thing. And the world did notice. 60 years after this event took place, which sounds like a lot of time. It's a generation and a half. It is a long time. But 60 years, maybe 70 years after this has taken place, the Jesus movement in Jerusalem spread out to all these other cities all over the Roman Empire. And we heard a little bit about that last week. 
particularly last week we heard about the believers in Jerusalem as the word kind of got out about like what they're doing, what they're up to. There's a lot of confusion about that. Gatherings of people together, caring for each other, but also like calling each other brother and sisters. It was weird. And then having this meal together called communion where they celebrated eating the body and the blood of Jesus, it was weird. And so last week, remember, we talked about how the believers in Jerusalem started struggling as a result of that. And people didn't want to do business with them. People didn't want to associate with them. Well, pretty soon, 70 years later, this movement kind of goes out, and there's these same questions, these same concerns. It just seems weird. Only now it's not just in Jerusalem. It's like everywhere. And so people at the higher up levels, they start kind of questioning this, and, and it isn't long before it's kind of weird, tends into, we should stamp this thing out and be done with it once and for all. And so that's what the emperors in Rome start to do. As the Jesus movement takes off, they're like, we need to be done with this. We need to root it out. We need to extinguish it. And so there's one Roman emperor, Trajan, who really started clamping down on the Jesus movement throughout the Roman Empire. And persecutions broke out, and it was really, really nasty for a really, really long time. And this one emperor, or this one governor in modern-day Turkey was just kind of curious about this whole thing. And he's like, listen, I don't know kind of necessarily how to go forward. And so this governor named Pliny the Younger, in about 112 AD, about 70 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan in Rome. And every time he would write a letter, he would keep a copy for himself. And then when the emperor wrote back, he kept those letters as well. And so you have this historically preserved, documented correspondence between a Roman governor in Turkey and the Roman emperor in Rome. And it's fascinating to hear these two, these two uh, uh, religious outsiders of the faith, at least, discuss what the Jesus movement means to them. And so the the governor, Pliny the Younger, just wanted to know more about this and to report on it and to get some wisdom of like, hey, listen, how do we go forward? What do we do with this emperor? And so he, he writes this story to the emperor and he goes, hey, listen, um, we did a little research. And uh, Emperor Trajan, we caught a couple of them. Like we infiltrated their gatherings, their, their churches, and, you know, we captured two of them. Uh, two leaders in the Jesus movement in, in one, of my, one of my cities. They're called uh, deaconesses. They're these two women, and there's, there's apparently have a lot of influence with like what happens there. But emperor, we got a couple of them. And, and don't worry, we like roughed them up real good so we could get the truth out of them. And based on that truth, I just, emperor, I've got a few questions. Like where we go from now? And we have this and we have this, uh, this correspondence. And so I just wanted to read a little bit for you. It says, uh, this is Pliny is writing to the emperor. And he goes, the substance of their fault, the Jesus movement in his territory, the substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly. Like they, they, they get up when nobody else is up. So that they don't have to inconvenience anybody else. So that they can still make it on time for their jobs. So, so, that, so that they don't have to sacrifice being the best dad or the best mom that they could be to the kids. Because nobody's awake yet. They get up before dawn on their own. And they sing with like passion. They sing responsibly a hymn to Christ 
as to a God? And we all know that's a little ludicrous, right? But, but they do. And then they, they, to bind themselves by oath. Okay, here it is. But not to some crime, but not to commit crime, not to commit fraud or theft or adultery, to not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. And when this was over, it was their, it was their custom to depart and, and to assemble again to partake of food. And this is the weird part about the body and the blood, but, but ordinary and innocent food. Emperor, I don't know what you want me to do about this, but I just got to say, these people, after really digging into it, might be some of the best people in our cities. I mean, can you imagine a group of people gathering together on the same day every week and swearing an oath that they'll break no laws, that they'll tell the truth, that they'll be the best possible people that they can be? Emperor, I don't know what you want to do about them, but I mean, I kind of hope that we see more of them. These people, they're bizarre, they're strange, their practices, what they do. I mean, you know, they have this, this way of, of addressing people in different classes. We all know there's different statuses, there's different classes of people, that, that, that this is something that's just been around since the, since the dawn of humanity. And so we all know that some people have the right to own other people. But like emperor, they talk about slaves? Like that distinction between slaves and free people doesn't even exist. That there's no Jewish person or, or Gentile, a non-Jewish person, that they're not even looking at that distinction anymore. But, but that whether you're a slave or you're a free person, it's like everybody has the, the honor and the dignity given them by God at creation. And the emperor, I don't understand this thing either, but the way that they talk and, and, and honor the giftedness of women in their communities, I don't, I don't get it. It's nothing like anything we've seen before, the way they lift up women in honor and dignity. And again, they give them the same status and rights and privileges, right, as, as any other person in creation. Like, we don't get it. But a lot of people in my city, I can just picture what I'm saying, a lot of people in my city are kind of hoping that maybe they end up working for one of these people someday. <laughs> I don't understand it all at all, but I kind of got to say, I, I hope I have the chance to hire one of them. I don't get it at all, but I have got a daughter, and if she ends up dating one of these, like, I guess worse things could happen, you know? I don't get it. Tell me what to do. As this movement that is honoring and recognizing the dignity in all people is sweeping the empire. Mr. Trajan, what should I do? It even goes beyond that. As some of the customs of the day was that when somebody were to, to have a baby that they weren't ready for, or they didn't want, or it was deformed in some way, a standard practice to go into the woods and to just drop that baby off. Forget about it. Start over. Emperor, these Christians would, would follow us into the woods. 
and they would find those little babies, and they'd pick them up, and they'd bring them home. Emperor, they would, they would care for them, and they would nurture them, and they would, they would raise them up as if they were their own. And more and more people are paying attention, and more and more people want to be a part of the movement of the crucified Christ. What do we do? Their unity of all people is somehow demonstrating his resurrection, and we can't stop it. I'd like to share with you a leadership principle that somebody shared with me very early on and said, in the church, there's going to be division and there's going to be a difference of opinions. And at some point, this was before 2020, (laughs) he had no idea. At some point, those divisions and disagreements would swell up and they would even be arguing and potentially even yelling. And so the wisdom that was given to me that I'm going to give to you is is when there's noise and when there's yelling and when things really get heated, don't meet the yelling and don't meet the heat with heat. Instead, when there's noise and when there's yelling, when it goes up, go soft, go low, and and quiet down. And it's not like, like a metaphorical thing. No, like literally use a softer tone of voice. Because when there's a lot of noise out there, It's the silence that speaks most boldly. And this divided nation of ours needs so badly a united church. And it might not like seem to make a lot of sense to be a a voice of calm, a voice of hope. But it's like the world is paying attention. They can't help Because such a loud, noisy, divided world is going to see a community of believers united in this resurrection hope. And hearts start following along after the crucified Christ. And if we didn't see it once, we didn't think that it could ever happen. But but church, I'm telling you, the stillness, the quiet, The Psalm 46, being still, knowing I am God, it speaks volumes. The world was swept up into it. The world was changed by it once. And it can be again. May our unity, Jesus, demonstrate your resurrection. God, I pray today that as we go out into the week and as we have conversations with others, God, as we consider our own use of social media, God, I pray that that this world of yours will be swept up in this grand vision that you have for your church, that you will not let this end with us, but that you will work through us to demonstrate your resurrection power, your resurrection hope, that unity now is a miraculous gift of yours. God, these are our tools that we use to fight and to win others over, Jesus. Our worship.